welcome um, to this new part of the uh, podcast system. This is uh, on the history of anatomy and particularly also on the history of cadaveric dissection. You know that anatomy is a very historical subject, um, but these days the way we're asked to actually teach it is to avoid the history, to abrogate or scrub out the history. We're not asked to comment on the eponyms, the background story of discovery. And anatomy is basically a history, a, a mythology, in fact, of discovery. And it's like, in a sense, some aspects of our teaching of anatomy, teaching really with one hand tied behind one's back, the idea actually is that every dissection that we do has some kind of ritualistic um, nature to it. It's part of the mythology of all past dissections and the manner in which we uh, go about it. Uh, which particular organs are touched first uh, was based to some extent on historical decomposition prior to preservation, prior to embalming. And if you think about it, what did someone like, for example, Leonardo da Vinci know about opening the body? It would have appeared an amorphous mass of material with no basic kind of big holistic picture. And the idea really of the earliest anatomists was not just discovery of the interior of the body, but also it was a discovery really of the mechanism or the conduct of dissection itself. Um, within this particular section of podcasts, I wanted to also um, talk to some extent about the art-anatomy interface, that kind of covenant that exists really um, between artists and anatomists, the different imperatives of both, uh, the different dedications of both looking at the same material, looking at cadaveric material, the idea really that naturally there should be an illustrative tradition of anatomy uh, only really came about in the Renaissance, uh, particularly introduced by Vesalius and his artist, uh, Jan Stefan van Kalker. But prior to that, anatomy was an oral, that's an A-U-R-A-L tradition, where professors read books, uh, perhaps by Galen or by uh, Erasistratus, Herophilus or others, uh, that were canonical texts. Uh, it was not a visual enterprise. And uh, those individuals around the Renaissance converted it from an oral into a visual tradition. What we're trying to do, I suppose, with podcasts in this regard is actually reverse that to some extent, take a very visual subject like anatomy and convert it um, into an oral tradition. So that's just really by way of introduction. Um, I wanted to um, start... Uh, and mention that uh, I'm going to go in general terms just talking about an introduction to this subject, a kind of preface based on um, uh, a book that I've written, uh, really the book of the cadaver, Dissecting the Corpse in History, Art and uh, Medicine. But I want to follow this particular text at least to explain the nature of the history of um, dissection. And we're going to start... Um, really with a kind of a, um, uh, a, a, a preface. Anatomy is a, an activity that is tinged more than anything with violence, but 
includes dismemberment or disarticulation, disjunction and dislocation. Through its dissection into elemental parts, anatomy is the study of the body's interiority. But that, of course, ignores the physical expression of the surface anatomy, which defines organ position by superficial landmarks, and which, of course, is the anatomical basis of any art studio uh, employing live nude models. It's also the story, as I've said before, of the collaborative covenant between anatomist and artist in their portrayal of the dissected body and how the style of body illustration evolved within its particular social climate like other forms of art. Such a topic might seem a rather strange place to land, but I hope that a little further on it becomes clear why I chose this subject. The Spectre of the dead body permeates no matter where one looks, but its generic exterior doesn't lie in a vacuum. Even if part of it has transcended to an ethereal and unreachable place, it still remains connected to almost everything else with which it comes into contact. Those are the common components of a corpse which surpass cultures and which outstrip folklore. By contrast, the interior of the body is far less known to general audiences, even when anatomy as a subject was forged by the Renaissance spectacles which dismantled corpses for public consumption in what became known as the anatomizations. For the medical journalist and historian Christine Quigley, uh, only recently died, the cadaver, quote, gave the anatomist purpose, unquote. But this physical fact did not happen in isolation, even if the dissectors in some of their endeavours were intermittently sequestered from the rest of society. The private desire to dissect wasn't met by the limited availability of corpses and it actually led to the bad reputation that anatomists garnered for acquiring their bodies through the most nefarious of means. And it was only really when anatomy itself left the rubric of the natural philosophies and it joined the collection of sciences and when bodies were ultimately handed over in an orderly and legally regulated fashion, that its practitioners were able to become socially rehabilitated. Really only then did the corpse deliver the promise of its biological value. Now, it would be first reasonable to assume that some detailed analysis of the navigation of the human body and the meticulous dissection of its interconnected systems would be directed more towards a small or a specialised audience. Dissection of the corpse is, after all, historically elitist and secretive territory, the somewhat repugnant province of the arcane or those perhaps with an eidetic memory interested in the accumulation of fact upon fact. Through such a lens, perhaps the only intercept anatomy might have with the rest of society would be with a natural history museum, whose narrative is the anthropological rise of mankind. But recently the dissected cadaver has resurfaced, travelling the world in exhibition under the macabre direction of the pathologist Gunther van Hagens in his show Body Worlds, Die Kopperwelten, where um, bodies and body parts are displayed in parodic poses, playing chess, kicking soccer balls and even engaging in sexual intercourse. There seems to be more than a basic appeal for these lifelike hybrid bodies which embed real human corpses with pressurised plastic polymers. 
and which places them in a sort of liminal state somewhere between death and immortality. But of that much later in other podcasts. The first exhibition uh, of Body Worlds featuring Van Hagen's plastinated corpses was actually in Tokyo and Osaka in 1995, and since then more than 50 separate international exhibits have been produced with an estimated 30 to 35 million visitors, making it perhaps the most successful show on earth. Anatomy has, however, become culturally imprinted, if not in the graphic and evocative images of the pathology of a smoker's lung um, or a diabetic foot overtaken with gangrene, both of which adorned the 1990s and 2000s billboards with their recriminating, finger-wagging insistence, then it has manifested later on in our consciousness with a relentless rise of medical imagery, appearing as the psychedelic whirls and undulations of the brain generated perhaps by any MRI machine. We're constantly visually bombarded with the trappings of anatomy, the product of a CSI culture that has adopted its traumatic nomenclature of contusions or lacerations and hemorrhages, and that is forever awaiting the latest toxicology reports or DNA analyses. Our publications have subsumed the very word anatomy itself as a moniker for any dissection of a story, the anatomy and hence the dissection of a murder or a crime or a coup or a political campaign has each made an appearance, even if that motif of analysis had already emerged as far back as Stuart England when Robert Burton in 1621 first published his Anatomy of Melancholy. Both words, anatomy and dissection, already have cultural meaning. Burton first published it as the Anatomy of Melancholy, what it is, with all the kinds, causes, symptoms, prognostics and several cures of it. And the book extended the analogy further, including three, quote, main portions with their several sections, members and subsections, philosophically, medicinally, historically opened and cut up. And the vogue for anatomising philosophical subjects actually abounded in the 16th century, certainly anatomical subjects, with Thomas Rogers's 1576, The Anatomy of the Mind, or John Lilly, if F.U.S., The Anatomy of Wit in 1578, Thomas Nash's 1589, Anatomy of Absurdity, or John Moore's cleverly entitled 1596, A Lively Anatomy of Death, John Donne's posthumous 1611, uh, Anatomy of the World, is also another uh, um, example. Now, I should confess, I think, at the outset to my own history and explain my interest in this subject and how it's come in the last few years, really, to dominate my life. In 2017, after 33 years as a practising surgeon, it was definitely time to take some time out. And when you write that rather simple sentence out on a computer screen, particularly at four in the morning, it makes such a decision look a little easier than it was. But complicated resolutions which typically precede or precipitate major changes in one's life always seem to look a little different on paper or on screen than they do running in your head. The practical, and I would say even the tiresome aspects also of disentangling myself from the mechanics of a surgeon's life after the 
decision had been made were a little unexpected, but they largely passed without regret. Surgeries changed so markedly, even in the last five years, that myself as an older practitioner, uh, I, I no longer recognised it. And although it's, this is not a polemic on professional dissolution, and perhaps that might be um, another podcast, but the conversion of most surgery really from a deeply tactile and intimately invasive sport to one which was conducted through remote ports, run on video monitors, happened obviously at, at lightning speed. Now there's no doubt whatsoever that our patients have benefited from this new technology. But it's also true that the modern surgical life attracts a very different sort of enthusiast than it did in the relatively recent past. And in effect, we both left one another behind. I also felt there was a, a lot more things to do, certainly a lot more things to learn, to write about and to study. And my surgical life really beforehand had a familiarity that um, that uh, old dogs could enjoy, really, opening up abdomens and chest cavities, grasping tumours with your hands to resect them away from their normal surrounding tissue. It, it was not only a powerful feeling, but also it was enormous fun to be reliant on this kind of tactile or haptic sensibility and at times a measured swiftness that could intermittently create its own unique challenges. Sometimes it was good, but not always. It's an occupation surgery of repetitive self-criticism with those around you also sitting in judgment. Every surgeon goes through operations as a learning exercise, no matter how many times they've performed it. And there's always a feeling that you could have done it slightly differently or marginally better. The surgical dream time for all of us still inexorably plays and replays in our heads or in fitful sleep years later as the practical aspects of our most triumphant operations. And sometimes remorselessly it plays as the inner reel of our spectacular operative failures. That's the stuff of nightmares. But even those aspects of uncertainty and self-doubt are generic to every case, no matter the level of surgical experience, things have definitely changed. Today, surgeons are largely removed from the tangible closeness of the innards of their patients by foot-long working instruments inserted through minuscule windows and snaked into the body cavities. The operator is now what the public refers to as keyhole surgery, might fancifully appear not unlike modern-day Wizards of Oz pulling at levers behind a magical curtain. And if that transition's not enough, the images are transmitted in real time onto video screens where one's incremental accomplishments or flops can be the subject of commentary and constructive correction, not only in the room in a way never before visible, but if needs be, the whole thing can be sent halfway around the world where people you've never met can critique your decisions and your dexterity. As surgery transitioned from the tactile to the visible realm, it added just that little bit more pressure. The emotions involved in relinquishing the scalpel in this new environment are, I, I think, doubtless those anyone else might go through surrendering some other hands-on craft. I imagine that it also bears some similarity to the confused feelings a novelist endures in giving up writing, albeit temporarily, or facing perhaps the abyss of a writer's block. Or maybe it resembles the guilt some painters and sculptors feel whenever they've downed tools, and even if for the briefest period abandoned their art. 
I have to say that in, in truth, I simply wasn't enjoying it anymore. Uh, I guess perhaps with the worst of all timing, coming at an age and a stage of my career where stimulating alternative work was actually pretty scarce, and still remains so. Some around me were worried and, and looked at me as if I'd adopted that sort of ambivalent expression of that cartoon character, Wiley Coyote, who, uh, when he's high up in a tree, cluelessly saws off the branch he's sitting on. Well, serendipity is a good thing. I fortunately found some of the answer for personal fulfilment in the anatomy building which was next door. And come, coming, as these things often do, from the unlikeliest of places, intending really only to do a season or a session or two of teaching before sloping off into retirement and um, obvious obscurity. But revisiting dissection of the cadaver after all those years away was actually a necessary stimulus that gave a practical sense of accomplishment, at least matching some of the old aspects of surgery. There was too, with dissection of the cadaver, that tangible ability to grab things and to move around and about them in order to comprehend their geometry and their textural personality. All of the primordial debates which I'd so enjoyed and which started in our studentship days presented themselves again through the motif that had defined virtually every medical school, the dissection of a corpse. Now, I had, I must admit, for years taken anatomy for granted not really ascribed to the sense, uh, to it really, the sense of importance that it deserved. Uh, for one thing, uh, it was a dry subject, if not a little dusty. It was the province of museums, with the subject more often than not taught by museum pieces themselves, the tutors holding up, often in a gloomy light, their most treasured, musty, formal and filled jars or special dissection pieces called prosections, which someone had made well before I was born. Our professors reeled off the data sheets of things to remember in anatomy, intoning us to know an impossibly large number of isolated facts, such as the 15 branches of a particular facial artery, the maxillary artery, or the 10 main variations of some accompanying nerve. The subject was so demanding that in the 1970s, when I was first studying it, one could always tell where the medical school was in any university anywhere in the world just by hearing the students accumulated outside their faculty building, practising their mnemonics of memory. It surely was as much music, I imagine, to the ears of our professors, of our professors, as it would have been to any Latin masters listening to their students singing out the most complex verb conjugates. So anyway, I decided to relinquish my clinical life and to return to the cadaver as a uh, part-time tutor and then later full-time in anatomy to see whether something more could be gained from its proximity and instruction. And immediately my expectations needed to be revised from the impression that I had as a student of the subject. For one thing, talking with authority about anatomy was an entirely different kettle of fish from knowing about it as a working surgeon. In my operative practice, I'd used it every day, but in a far more limited scope, really relying on its predictability and expecting that this or that particular blood vessel would naturally lie behind or alongside one or other defined structure that had its own reliability in its own origins and inserting relationships. I'd spent countless hours studying the expected and commoner anatomical variations that might crop up in the course of one's daily work, and I'd collected images of the rarer anomalies for cherished presentations at conferences. 
much of the radiologic imagery that I'd used in my cancer practice in trying to decide about whether tumours were likely to be able to be removed completely was predicated on defining those vital veins, arteries and ductal structures, the infiltration of which might preclude either a safe or a successful tumour removal. In short, my whole life as a surgeon revolved around anatomy, even if I didn't acknowledge at the time its fundamental importance. But that working familiarity with anatomy wouldn't suffice for my new postgraduate students. They wanted to know its finer details, and there was an unnatural clash between what they might need to know for their diploma examinations and why in surgery, and in life actually, any of it was actually really important. Today in teaching anatomy, one is fact-checked more than a politician. They stand there with their iPhones and determine whether what you've said is correct. The slightest misnomer or pedagogic misstep concerning the relationship between some structure and its neighbouring tissues and organs is immediately Googled by your audience. The teachers need to be on their game. But if as a tutor you're lucky enough to attract a crowd of followers as you point your way around the interior of a human body, you need to rapidly establish that accuracy where, a bit like life, there's really only one chance to create a first impression. When you immerse yourself in cadaveric dissection and discussion for a living, it soon becomes apparent, though, that even the medical school itself is a sort of social construct whose rather splendid history has been built around the cadaver as a basic, tradable commodity. In many ways, the cadaveric connection describes what it means to be a doctor, and each university has, in its unique history, prided itself on the resourcefulness not only of the anatomy department in acquiring its corpses, but also on its delivery of an experience of a personalised cadaveric dissection for each student. Now, in many universities today, however, the cadaver is a conduit between the student and the medical faculty, one thinks of it that way, has almost disappeared with computer imagery mimicking the layering of vital structures on top of one another. The young surgeons in training have become no different to pilots in their flight simulators. Now, even the tactile experience of um, being able to encircle the contours of a complicated organ, like the heart or the liver, can in its entirety be virtually reproduced with a 3D printer. It's a pragmatic tool which can be used, for example, by paediatric surgeons in attempting to understand the dimensionality, the complexity and techniques of the repair of a congenital heart defect long before they ever need to operate on a real patient. Or else the latest simulators can scroll through the anatomy of a virtual corpse. They can invent their own mimetic dissection or follow through the course and conduct of some sham operation. They can provide the perfect vehicle through a haptic, tactile feedback that feigns the feeling of actually cutting something or pushing aside its surrounding structures, all the while watching it shower the field with simulated blood. Almost any reality can be synthesised, any scenario enacted. Perhaps the only thing truly missing from this approach is a tangible sensibility of how an organ can give way under the pressure of the scalpel or the, perhaps the elasticity of its physical encroachment upon neighbouring tissues. And if one were being uh, pedantic or had a sense of the historic, the lingering smell of dead flesh. 
The arguments in many universities have already been proffered that since the vast majority of medical students have no intention of practising surgery, that there should be no need to subject the rest in their training to the grim business of dissecting a corpse. It is distasteful and replaceable, so they say, and the atmosphere of any medical school should be able, with digital substitutes, to rid itself of the evanescent aroma of formalin. Now, that debate to save the cadaver and the cadaveric experience, I think, has largely been lost, and many schools worldwide have abandoned the real cadaver for its virtual homologue. But if the demographic argument was that 95% of the audience weren't interested in going to the dissecting room, then I think one could just as cogently argue for the closing of some museums and galleries anywhere in the world, since the majority of their communities, despite a proximity, may never visit them. More importantly, as a social experiment, it remains to be seen whether the slow divorce between the school and the corpse will deleteriously impact on the integrity of the clinical examination of real live patients or whether it will affect the need for and the community cost of the new radiologic imaging. Only time and an insistent curiosity will tell if this will ultimately impact the quality of patient care. That aside, as I settled into my job, however, it became apparent that anatomy and the dissection of the cadaver is, was, an intensely ritualistic and historical enterprise. It didn't come from nowhere, even if, as I've said, someone like Leonardo da Vinci, 1452 to 1519, dissecting the body, had no protocol for its examination, no terminology even to describe what he found and then drew. Anatomy in its development was then a product of the limitations of its time. The Renaissance anatomizations, which became so popular in Italy, were performed as pageants on those condemned to death for capital crimes. The public appetite for these shows was such that they were linked in Bologna, for example, to the annual Carnivale, and in England to the court assizes, so that the judges could more easily hand over the bodies of the condemned to the waiting anatomists. The invention of these dramatic events where the surgeons rubbed shoulders with municipal leaders, philosophers and the general public may have had the premise of a ritualistic demonstration of corporeal anatomy, but its purpose was the symbolic reinforcement of the power of the state over those who would transgress its civic laws. These performances predated the more private and elitist dissection of the body that established the companies and colleges of surgeons and their apprentices. And that transition that ritualised the examination of the body formed the basis for the modes of physical examination of living patients until the discovery in 1895 of X-rays by Wilhelm Röntgen. Even the um, protocol of the way we examine the body or observed dissection of the body cavities, follows that described by the Bolognese anatomist Mondino de Liuzzi, 1270-1326, in the early 14th century. Mondino, who preferred the Latin cognomen Mondinus, was forced, without any means of preserving bodies, to carry out his dissections in the winter months so as to retard the process of decay. 
perhaps as some Byzantine homage, the order of examination in my medical school days in the late 70s was pretty similar to that adopted by these medieval dissectors who were wholly dependent upon the rapidity of corruption of the tissues. It's, I think, a point lost on most dissectors, as is the rather antiquated notion that there were in the body separate, identifiable houses of dissection, each with their moral as well as their structural importance, and each part of an historical hierarchy which contained the natural, the vital and the animal spirits. In Mundinus's schema, which became adopted throughout the Western world, first to be dissected was the abdomen, what he called the lower venta, thought not only the most corruptible part of the body, but also the seat of the basest sensibilities. Then came the thorax with its heart, lungs and vital spirits, and from there the brain, the locus of the animal spirit, and home of what was called the sensor comune, the centre of reasoning, which was thought to be contained in the third ventricle. That sensor comune for da Vinci and also for the mechanistic philosopher René Descartes, 1596 to 1650, was potentially the seat of the soul. And then after all this had been done, the limbs and the genitalia were penultimately tackled in the dissection protocol. If left undissected after a few days, they took on the consistency of old leather, maintaining their integrity and shape for a while until all the muscles which became like dried strips of string, could then just be peeled off the bones. And for many of the early anatomists, the reproducible permanency of the bones, stripped of all their fleshy supports and picked clean, were the longest-lasting record of someone's humanity and any anatomist's most abiding passion. The entire dissection would have to have been conducted fairly swiftly, usually over about three to four days, until the body would have decomposed to such a point that for examination purposes it became uh, relatively useless. Descartes, for example, used his personal dissections of the brain as a confirmatory exercise to his articulated philosophy, so that dissection was very much part of his philosophical teaching. And he laments in his 1649 uh, book Passion de l'âme that by the time he had been given a brain by the uh, anatomists to dissect, that the soul, which he believed to be in the canarium, which is now the pineal gland, was often liquefied and invariably too decomposed uh, to appreciate. Anyway, returning to my task, it soon became apparent that the baggage of anatomy was not only historical but also social. There was a corporeal legacy transcending the body itself and which perhaps lying outside of anatomy, had become insinuated into the public consciousness. This was something that couldn't be captured in simple descriptions of the cadaver. This ahistorical exterior in particular implicated the cadaver in the manner in which it touched almost everything else it came into contact with and is evident in our social attitudes towards death, or in the cultural mores of how a corpse might comfortably be illustrated or portrayed or presented in public. It was firmly embedded into the law, medicine, science, religion. It had made itself felt in how we distinguish the bodies of women from some more basic male template. The spectre of the dead body permeated no matter where one looked. The task of writing about this or discussing it here in a podcast about dissection of the corpus became, is 
daunting in both the particular and the general. If you pick one topic, there's essentially an unwritten book in itself. Pick all of them, and one has to start really with an apologia that the generalities of each specific topic are not covered really with due diligence. The subject is unreasonably expensive, embracing the origins of scientific method, the techniques of tissue preservation, the chronicle of wax sculpting of anatomical lookalikes or simulacra, the illicit trade of corpses to feed the dissector's demand, and the impetus towards a realistic visual representation of anatomy. This is the sort of broad range of what one could consider in the history of cadaveric dissection. But it's not unreasonable to ask, how did the examination of the cadaver become organised? How did it become ritualised and ultimately translated into a transmissible way of thinking? How, too, was it um, uh, the subject of anatomy was able to divorce from its firm alliance, in the first instance, with the natural philosophies and the metaphysicians, and evolve into a science? How did it transpire that dismembering a corpse became the integral mechanistic leitmotif for how a medical education is delivered? At times when there was a shortage of cadavers to examine, artists became the principal dissectors of the human body and were the main font of anatomical knowledge. But even though art and anatomy overlapped, it was not natural that they complemented one another in a body narrative. The Belgian... Andreas Vesalius, 1514 to 64, who we'll talk about quite a lot uh, through these podcasts, was one of the first and certainly the most important anatomists to link dissection with its illustration, tying his new dissection method to a quality artistic representation of his findings and seeking out one Jan Stefan van Kalker, 1499 to 1546, who was a student of the Venetian master Tiziano Vicelli, or Titian, 1488 to 1576, to provide exquisite images in Vesalius's 1543 groundbreaking book, The Fabrica Humani Corpus, The Fabric of the Human Body. The wider European impact of this decision to link art and anatomy just after the proliferation of the printing press cannot be overestimated. Vesalius was also the first to dissect a body clean and picking out the boiled bones then re-articulate the hanging skeleton in a way which has become the totem both of medicine and, I, I suppose, of the figure of death itself. Now, Vesalius was a particularly modest man who stood out among other anatomists not particularly known for their humility. But in the dedication of the fabrica to the Emperor Charles V, as was the sort of custom for books of note that purported to explain the physical nature of the universe, Vesalius remarks that he wasn't so much revolutionising the study of anatomy, but really revivifying it after a millennium of inactivity and disinterest. For Vesalius, at least, to dissect the human body was a search for truth and the handiwork of God, and for all physicians this pursuit was then a moral obligation. Just one further measure of the genius of Vesalius, however, was his epiphany to dissect bodies himself, rather than, as most of his mentors had done up until that time, to sit ex-cathedra on an elevated dais and read aloud to the students 
about the anatomy of the body from some ancient canon of textbooks. To Vesalius, anatomy was a practical sport, and in inviting his students to participate and get their hands dirty, he not only converted a previous literary tradition into a visual workshop, but he democratised the subject in the process. Now, in this sense, his importance to anatomy cannot be overestimated. He personifies the point where conceptually anatomy moved from being an entirely textual subject to one that was reinforced by visual experience. In vaguely an artist into his private world, however, served another purpose. It memorialised and immortalised not only his work, but himself, even if the art of the body in his books was more symbolic than factual. The two processes were essential for anatomy to develop. The impact of the revisions Vesalius made to the conduct and the study of anatomy and to how a corpse should be dissected would have been significantly diluted without Van Kalka's imagery. Van Kalka's corpses dance across majestic landscapes and contort into postures that were by design supposed to glorify a Greco-Roman ideal. Here, for example, was anatomy lionising the symmetry of a Borghese gladiator or a Medici Venus. That was the nature of the art, very symbolic. But in this context, even though anatomy had not yet carved itself off from the natural philosophies, it was a true Renaissance subject, gaining its strength, as did painting, sculpture, architecture and poetry, from the ancient symbols and formats. Renaissance anatomy was taught and reiterated from the texts of the Greek anatomist Claudius Galen, 129 to 210 roughly AD, and it was taught also on Aristotelian principles, even when both Galen and Aristotle had never dissected a single human being. Anatomy sought, like the other mechanical arts, to reinvent itself after the quietude of the Middle Ages by emulating some recognised and perfected standard of the ancients. That, after all, was the definition of the Renaissance, the reconstruction of ancient architecture and art in a more modernist setting. Along the way, in the late 13th century, autopsy was born to determine the cause of death, even though it appeared in an age where nothing was really understood about the development and progression of disease. With the ultimate preservation of the body, death and the cadaver were used as the scaffolding for dioramas, which were designed to remind the public of the ephemeral nature of life and of the need for constant penitence, the little models often using the pieces of dead children as their landscapes. For these dioramas, anatomy served an allegorical purpose, as much as any church fresco might appear to an illiterate audience in the demonstration of the story of the Gospels. Firstly, in its development as a separate specialty, the split of anatomy from the humanities gave the dissectors the opportunity to become concerned more with the workings of nature rather than with the mechanics of human nature. This was the difference between anatomists and metaphysicians or philosophers. The birth in the 17th century of science as the arbiter of physical truths is generally considered to have been initially established by Francis Bacon, 1561 to 1626, whose inductive method of reasoning predicted that universal laws could be discerned 
by repeated empirical observations of nature. This was certainly the wheelhouse of anatomy. But it took William Harvey, 1578 to 1657, to introduce the idea that the physical structure of the body could be understood by introducing a new experimental methodology when he actually proved the mechanism of the circulation, the circulatory system of the heart and blood, by cutting the aorta of a live dog and showering the front row of a Paduan lecture theatre with its pulsating arterial blood. From then on, after Harvey, anatomy stood firmly in the ranks of the sciences. There were sciences to develop through scientific method, and anatomy was no longer the bedfellow of philosophers. The obsessive personalities of the anatomists through their own private collections of dissected anatomical specimens and congenital deformities were the forerunners of the public museums and they helped along, were helped along by the newly outlined Darwinian theory of evolution. They conceptualised really what a museum space should actually look like. Their formulaic narrative of the ethnic differences in developing civilizations provided a framework of acceptability in the open show-and-tell types of museum displays. So anatomy itself was important in defining the museum space. Private collections of skulls and bits of bodies sprung up throughout Victorian England and in Belle Epoque, France. But even before the anatomists had completed charting their discovery of the macroscopic territory of the body, the artists were naturally drifting away from them. It's only really later the elegance of the microscopic view of the graceful symmetry, uh, perhaps of a double helix of, of a strand of DNA, which could remain as a source of mutual inspiration between artist and anatomist. But recently the artists have regained a kind of newfound enthusiasm for anatomical structure in the reconstructed computerised imagery of the CAT scans or in the otherworldly contours of the video endoscopes that can light up the darkest recesses of almost every human corner. It lastly in this little introduction needs to be conceded that in all the symbolic observances that surrounded the dissection of the cadaver, there was until the late 19th century a deliberate and inflexible exclusion of women from a process dominated by prurient male delight in dissection of the female. Women were sometimes permitted to watch dissections, but generally not to engage. Those circumventing discrimination and seeking to learn anatomy through their art classes were also treated with the same level of paternalism. When the artist Cathay Kollwitz, 1867 to 1945, uh, for example, enrolled in the Verein Drawing and Painting School of Berlin's Kunstlerinnen in 1885, she was only permitted to study the plaster casts of female nudes and semi-clad casts of nude men because the female students were strictly forbidden from attending the live nude drawing classes. Likewise, there were unremitting attempts made by many professors of anatomy to spare women the rigours of dissection of the cadaver. On occasion, the most vociferous antagonists were women professors themselves. With increasing discrimination, Pennsylvania, for example, separated off a women's medical college with an independent anatomy department. In her valedictory speech to the graduating class of 1858, their professor of anatomy, Emmeline Cleveland, 1829 to 1878, 
feared that, quote, anatomy and kindred studies cannot fail to inure or destroy those feelings of delicacy and refinement which add peculiar lustre to the character of women, unquote. It's not unreasonable to suggest that she changed her mind in a later um, address in 1868, holding the opposing view that, quote, the study of anatomy was a hymn of honour of the creation, and that the study of medicine had but strengthened your womanly feeling and your reverence for the divine. It's somewhat facile to extract behaviour from the past and scrutinise it with a modern-day sensibility. But it is absolutely conceivable that the average student of anatomy in some Victorian school might on occasion have been overtaken by their emotional responses to dissecting the dead, perhaps overwhelmed by the ritualistic pomp and ceremony of the dismantling the corpse in the Brock Manor. They might have been transported um, by the religious overtones and the moralistic tropes of an ancient theatrum anatomia. Such a student of anatomy would indeed have been as susceptible as any pupil of romantic literature reading the dissecting poetry of John Donne, whose stanzas were constantly cleansing his mortal remains and cleaving them from his godly soul. Our student might too in the detachment of dissection have been overtaken by the slightest of sadomasochistic tendencies, perhaps by the subtlest of erotic subtexts. Searching for the truth which Vesalius had outlined as the principal endeavour of any anatomist, should have been expected to compel the student to find through their dissections and their observations not just a cognitio sui, a knowledge of self, but also a cognitio dei, an understanding of the mind of God. The intellectual grasp of the anatomy of the human body has always been a difficult enterprise. The mastery of anatomy by grisly fellowship strains the memory and needs constant reinforcement. But anatomy is far more than its elemental annotation of the things that sit and fit together inside. It brings with it a connection to practices shaped over half a millennium and a mythology that imposes itself upon any contemporary dissection. <laughs>